0: verses 15 to 35, and I want you to hear what the Lord has for us this morning. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to them, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. He could not pay. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay, back, I'll pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred and And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay back all his debt so also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let me pray for us. Lord, have mercy on us. Increase our faith. This text is very clear. May you apply it by your Holy Spirit to each of us that we would truly forgive our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, there's sometimes an interesting thing that happens in church, and this hasn't happened here recently, thankfully. There's no fresh story in mind here, but but people will get mad at one another sometimes in the church, lo and behold, and people get sinned against, and as John Piper says, that we need to forgive sin and forbear strangeness, and often we d- disagree on which is which. We can't even agree on what is sinful and what is strange, you know, and that is often the case. And... But the idea here is that people, we talk a lot about Matthew 18, and what happens with people, they want to just come straight to the pastor. They want to set up an appointment with the pastor, and they want to meet with me, and they want to tell me about how somebody has hurt them in the church. And I used to listen naively until I realized how much damage I was doing by doing that. And I would listen, hear their story, and then I'd say, well, let me go back and follow up with so-and-so. And I'd go back to so-and-so, usually it would be an elder of the church, and they would be mortified and really angry that I had listened and taken this in when that somebody has done an end around and not followed Matthew 18 principles. And they'd say, how come they didn't come to me? They just went to you. And what are you doing listening to them? And recently I had somebody call me from out of state. One of, just an outside perspective, she's volunteered like part-time staff at a church, and she's been counseling a, a lady that's there's abuse in the home, and now the dad's found out about it, he's really upset, and he's going to the pastor and just setting up one-on-one meetings with the pastor and doesn't want her present, and he's saying that this relationship needs to stop, blah, blah, blah. And she's wondering, I have no support, what should I do? And I'm saying your pastor has to support you. And he shouldn't be meeting one-on-one with this guy without you present, because he's doing an end around on you. Now, I bring it up because we hear Matthew 18 a lot. When you hear Matthew 18 principles, and if you're in the church and you, you know, you, that's like, you know, 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection. Matthew 18 is about how to get right with somebody we typically think just verses 15 to 20, and we just completely forget 21 to 35, right? Or we figure 15 is you just go to him. But so much of the text is actually about when, when he gets done explaining what confrontation should look like and confronting somebody about our sin, Peter thinks, well, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weigh up on the, on the, on the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the Jews of the day, the rabbis, three times in a day. That was the limit. That was acceptable. So he thought he would up it double and add one and say, well, Lord, like how often should we do this? Seven times? I mean, that sounded pretty good, didn't it? He thought he'd try that one out on Jesus. And Jesus quotes back to Lamech, and Lamech boasting in his sinfulness that, man, not only do I sin, do I I kill like Cain, but I do it 70 times seven. I am a real killer. I mean, I'll show you vengeance. Jesus says, "Uh, actually, Lemmick principle is the Christian principle now, and that's the way you're to forgive each other in a day, even. And in the account in, in Luke, when it presents us, the response of the disciples was, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. And so, Matthew 18 is about confronting somebody else who sinned against you. But the text actually says a lot more about forgiving them. The forgiveness isn't optional. The confronting is. You follow me? Because when somebody sins against you, Proverbs 10, 12 just says, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers a multitude of sins. And that it's our glory to overlook an offense, Proverbs 19, 11. So it's our glory to just write it off. So confrontation is Optional. Sometimes it's necessary for the whole of the body or you're seeing something repeated and you love this person you're trying to help them. But unless you've forgiven them first and done the vertical forgiveness between you and the Lord where you take it to the cross and forgive them, you're never going to be able to make a horizontal confrontation without choking them. You will be saying pay back what you owe because you haven't forgiven. Confrontation is optional. Forgiveness is mandatory. This parable couldn't be any simpler in its direct confrontation to us, yet it couldn't be any more difficult. It's simple in its meaning, yet it's difficult in its ramifications and amplifications. So we need the Lord to increase our faith this morning. Let's revisit the parable briefly, okay? So we're looking at these parables of grace this month, and so each each week this month, we'll be looking at the astounding grace of God and the idea of the, the, the kingdom parables is that when you look at these kingdom parables, you want to ask yourself, well, what does this teach me about the king? What does it first teach you about the king? And then, and then secondly, how does it teach me to live as a son or daughter of the king? So as we look at these this month, ask yourself those two questions. What does this teach me about the king? And then what does it teach me about how to live as sons or daughters of the king? I'm really not saying anything profound. I mean, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what uh, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer is the scriptures principally teach. You got this one, Ben? What man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of man. So what duties he requires of, of us, or what we're to believe about him, and then what duties he requires of us. So let's just apply those two things as we look at this. Text. So Jesus tells a parable about a servant who owed the king 10,000 talents. Okay? The talent was the largest denomination of currency. A talent was 75 pounds. Therefore, 10,000 talents was 750,000 pounds. So we apply that today. I You look up this week, what is gold currently selling for? Over $1,200 an ounce, times that by 16. One pound of gold is over $19,000. You do your math, and if I'm doing it correctly, which is a big if, and you do the math, this is an equivalent of $14.4 billion of this 10,000 talent. So this guy has not just a little bit of debt, okay? He's got a lot of debt, okay? Not quite our national debt. That's, that's indescribable, but a lot of debt, okay? So even in Jesus' day, the taxes for one year in the entire area of Judea, Idumea, and Samaria was 600 talents in a whole year. So this guy has a Mount Everest of debt that he owed. Now in the parable, the servant is brought into the master and pleads, have patience with me, and I'll pay you back everything, even though there's no way you're going to be able to ever pay this back. A servant would make a denarii a day. That's it. And so in verse 27, we have one of the clearest gospel truths of the Bible. Look at verse 27. What are the three things that the master did or the king did? What are the three things? Out of pity for him, The master of that servant released him, forgave the debt. Pity, release, forgiven. Is that not the gospel? The king portraying our heavenly father shows compassion and pity. And this compassion or pity does more than just have compassion. It moves to action, this compassion. And he releases him, forgives him the debt, he could have released him to slavery and that would have been merciful. That's what the servant begged for. I'll pay you everything. I'll do my best. But no, the king canceled the debt. That's the gospel. Now many of you know that I don't like bees and bees don't like me and I had a traumatic experience when I was a kid I think off of Clopper Road. I was in Bennington Townhouse Subdivision when I was a kid and our Place backed up to on the other side of the road was woods. And I was back there playing as a kid. I'm probably seven years old, maybe eight, between seven and eight years old. And this kid I was with, he's like five years older than me. We made a fort in the woods. We're making this fort in the woods. It's summertime. I've never been stung by a bee. I know nothing about bees. I have no idea that they might come out of the ground and somehow even chase you. I mean, that's completely foreign and all of a sudden I'm getting lit up by yellow jackets. And I'm I just start and he's getting stung too, but I'm getting the brunt of it. And we just start running and I'm just I'm seven years old. I'm freaking out. I'm screaming, I'm crying and my neighbor comes running out of his house and he's a big construction foreman guy. He's huge. And when you're seven everybody looks, you know, really big. So he runs outside, he grabs me, throws me over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes, runs into his house, and he throws me down on his couch. And he says, boy, what the hell's the matter with you? And he's mad at me because I don't know if I've woken him up or he just can't figure out why I'm screaming my head off. But he looks at me and his eyes become as big as saucers because he sees the bees that are still on me. And he starts trying to, you know, freak out and get these bees off of me. And the whole thing for me is just was unbelievably traumatic as a seven-year-old, okay? So ever since, like, I just stay away from bees. Like, if there's a, if there's a bees nest in the church, I get the interns or, you know, Bruce, <laughs> the deacons, anybody, like, because I was scared to death. Well, the story is meant to be funny, but it's also to tell a point is that I think some people think that that's how God has forgiven them of their sin. That he's come down, he's rescued them, he's picked them up, but he runs them inside and he throws them down and he begins to give them a lecture. to say, what's the matter with you? Don't you know any better? And that's not how God forgives us at all. The Bible tells us that with much love, he loved us when we were dead. And that Romans 5 passage that, that Pat said, hear the good news this morning, was we were enemies. I mean, if you're an enemy at the war, you don't lay your life down for an enemy. Are you kidding? You lay your life down for your own troop. We were enemies. We were the one hurling the grenades at him. We were the, we were the rebels. He crossed enemy lines. He left everything. He took humanity to himself. He who is rich became poor. And, he, and, it, and the Bible just says in Colossians 2 that he forgave us our debt, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it. It is our sin. But what's between it and the cross is human flesh that's getting nailed through. That's Jesus' flesh, was ripped so I could be brought in. That's not harsh, throwing you down kind of love. That is such tender pity. And we say, well, it's God's job to forgive. Well, is it? Where are you in the rank between you and angels? Who's more important in God's hierarchy? You or angels? It says he stooped lower than angels. Angels are more important hierarchy. And all those angels that fell with Satan, how come you're not upset that they don't have any chance of being saved? Is God not fully just to condemn all the angels that fell with Lucifer? God is fully just to never give them a second chance. And we're fine with that, aren't we? We're all fine with that. He would be just as glorified to send every one of us to hell and no second chance because he's God and that's justice and that's it. But we have a problem with that all of a sudden. What for? Because we think we start as the reference point is us, not God, angels, us. We're way down on the list. And if we were to sin just like 10 times a day, Let's just say you only sin 10 times a day. Well, that's 3,650 sins a year. And if you live 70 years, well, my math's not great, but that's, that's more than a quarter million sins. The Bible says, forgive my sin, forgive my iniquity, not because it's small, but forgive my iniquity for it's great. The Bible doesn't say our guilt has reached the ceiling. The Bible says our guilt has reached the heavens. The Bible doesn't say our sins are as few as the fingers on my hand. It says our sins are as numerous as the hairs on my head. Some of us, that's smaller than others, but it's getting smaller for me. (laughs) You see, the Bible says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand but with you? There's forgiveness that you may be feared. Who's a God like you that pardons iniquity, Micah says? You've hurled our sins into the depths of the sea. Cory Tim Boom says, God has a sign of it, says no fishing. He doesn't go fishing again for our sins. Once he's taken our sins and he hurls them into the depths of the sea, have you ever lost something? You ever dropped something from a boat that doesn't float? You ever, what are the chances of getting that back? I mean, Kim lost a precious ring, grandmother's wedding ring. She was in the ocean. Her finger shrunk, catching waves, ring disappears. What are the chances of turn around and, oh, I'm going to go get that ring again? It's gone it that's what Jesus has done with our sin hurled into the depths of the sea gone as far as the east is from the west gone yet we forgive sins differently we forgive like a computer rather than a calculator don't we you know how you forgive with a computer you hit deleted items but anytime you need to recall it back you just hit the you go to that deleted items and you can recall it just like that That's how we tend to forgive. We need to forgive like a calculator. Once you push that C button, and you start over, it's it, gone. That's how God has forgiven our sins in his unbelievable grace towards us. You know, we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. We've been confessing that as the church for almost 2,000 years. And right before that, we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. In that forgiveness of sins, it's both we believe in his forgiveness of our sins, but we also believe that to have communion of saints, we have to forgive one another of each other's sins because God has been so gracious to us. Let me just remind you of God's great love for us. As we come to the table, we're to forgive, the Bible says, as the Lord forgave you. And so, just as I was telling you that analogy, that picture of this man running out of his house, grabbing me, he rescued me from the bees, did he not? But he scared the stuffing out of me in the process. still dealing with trauma from that. I wonder if somehow... Sometimes that's how we forgive each other of sins. Oh, I've forgiven you, all right. But I'm mad at you. You shouldn't have done that. The way that we're to forgive is how the Lord forgave us. This is what Spurgeon says about this text. He says, Jesus Christ absorbs sinners with all his heart. He never acts in a cold, formal manner. Never does he outwardly forgive and in secret retain his wrath, but wholly, entirely, joyfully. He puts the sin of those those whom he forgives and puts it away forever. What he forgives, he forgives the whole of our faults, follies, failures, and our offenses. He keeps no reckonings. He retains no reserves of anger. There are no reservoirs of wrath waiting to come down on you like this dam's going to break over with the next offense of your sin. It doesn't work that way. Spurgeon says... A life of forgiveness was crowned by his dying prayer for his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He loved his enemies. He lived for his enemies. He died for his enemies. He was incarnate gentleness, the mirror and paragon of gentleness. And then Spurgeon says, is this not the very groundwork and case of holiness in the world? The groundwork and the case of holiness in the world is that Jesus is so gracious as to pardon sin. That's the groundwork that enables us to forgive others. And then he says this. He says, we all have our angles and our edges and they're apt to come into contact with others. We're all pieces of one puzzle and we shall fit in with each other one day and make a complete whole. But for just now we seem to be misshapen and unfitting and our corners need to be rounded Sometimes they are chipped off by collision with somebody else. And that is not comfortable for the person with whom we collide. Like pebbles in the river of the water of life, we're wearing each other round and smooth as the living current brings us into communion. Everybody is polishing and being polished. And in the process, it's inevitable that some present inconvenience be, and this should be sustained, but nobody should mind it, for it's part of the great process by which we shall all come into proper shape and be made meet for endless fellowship. We come with different perspectives. We come with different political views. You just bring up the NFL and take in a knee, and you want to get into a, a debate. I mean, we could come... But we need to listen well to our brothers and our sisters that are coming from a different perspective and we need to restore one another and love one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive sins for bare strangeness. I'll close with a story that Ken Sandy tells in his book, The Peacemaker, which I highly recommend if you've never read it. great book. He talks about Thomas Edison and how his, when he and his staff were developing the incandescent light bulb, it took hundreds of hours to manufacture a single bulb. And one day after finally finishing a bulb, he handed it to the young errand boy to take upstairs to the testing room. And the young boy turned, started up the stairs and stumbled and fell, and the bulb shattered on the steps. Instead of rebuking the boy, Edison reassured him and then turned to his staff and told them, well, let's start working on another light bulb. And when it was completed several days later, Edison demonstrated the reality of forgiveness in the most powerful way possible. He walked over to the same boy and said, please take this up to the testing room. And imagine how that boy felt. He had not only been forgiven, he had been restored. And he was very careful (laughs) in his delivery. (laughs) And so... That's how the Lord has loved us. He not only forgives us, but he restores us. I mean, when the prodigal came home, he is instantly given sandals for his feet, a robe on his back, a ring on his finger, restored all of his status as sonship, even though he had blown it and he still smells like pigs. And That's how we should treat one another because that's how the Lord has treated us. Come to his table. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful, thankful, that we have been forgiven, set free, restored, reconciled. Thank you. Lord, may we take this moment, Lord, as we come to your table, to search our own hearts, to test us, to see if there's somebody that we need to get right with. Is there somebody, Lord, that we are harboring bitterness towards? We ask that you would give us the grace to forgive and to go to them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.